just adding a little historical perspective. Well, yeah, but you call it history, I call it propaganda. Now, I'm sure they got their own account of the Alamo on the other side, but we're not on the other side. There's no reason to be so Schools talk that way. Excuse me. I've only been trying to get across part of the complexity of our situation down here. Cultures coming together in both negative and positive ways. If you're talking about food and music and all, I have no problem with that. But when you start changing who did what to who... We're not changing anything, we're just trying to present a more complete picture. And that's what's got to stop. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic. A podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Joining me today is a woman who's all hat, no cattle. My lovely wife, Nakia, also known as the unenthusiastic critic. Hello. On this week's episode, Nakia and I are celebrating noir Vember with an underrated neo-noir western from writer-director John Sayles, Lone Star from 1996. Nakia, this is our fifth consecutive year participating in noir Vember, the month-long celebration of film noir invented by professional film fanatic Maria Gates. Gates came up with the hashtag in 2010, and film Twitter enthusiastically adopted it, staking out November as the perfect gray month to dive into this morally gray genre. In past episodes, you and I have discussed such noirs and noir-adjacent films as The Maltese Falcon, The Big Sleep, Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, Sweet Smell of Success, Body Heat, Blood Simple, Devil in a Blue Dress, and Bound. And despite your distaste for the term noir vember i just don't like the mouth feel <laughs> the mouth feel <laughs> uh you actually enjoyed all of those movies sure yeah so this is this is a genre you enjoy mm-hmm. i think it it resonates with you somehow <laughs> alas in the fatalistic spirit of film noir itself the future of noir vember is probably bleak as twitter is rapidly dying under its terrible new owner elon musk uh, in fact, I realized I hadn't seen as many Noir Vember posts as usual this year. You think that has to do with Elon? And that's, that's in part because even Maria Gates herself has more or less abandoned oh, Twitter wow. at this point. So, you know, at least until we all agree on a new social media platform, I think we may just have to make an effort to keep Noir Vember in our hearts going forward. Anyway, we're not going to do a big discussion about film noir this week. Listeners can go back to those earlier episodes and hear us do that. Uh, But I will say that the movie we're watching this week, Lone Star, is probably not the first film most people think of when that genre is mentioned. I'm prepared to defend it as a film noir, but, you know, if necessary, but we'll get to that. Nakia, do you know anything about this movie? No. Never heard of it? No. Okay. Do you know, I was trying to think if you know anything about John Sayles. So, writer-director John Sayles is known as an indie filmmaker with a social, even socialist, conscience. Uh, His first movie, The Return of the Secaucus 7 in 1979, was shot for about $60,000 and made a couple million dollars, and that really helped jumpstart the whole American independent film movement. Hmm. Um, This was a movie about a reunion of a bunch of leftist friends who'd gone to college together in the 60s, and when a couple years later... The big chill came out. People noticed more than a passing resemblance Mm. to the return of the Secaucus 7. He never became a household name, but throughout the 80s and 90s, he had an impressive string of really good, critically acclaimed, usually socially conscious movies that, in his own words, catapulted him from total obscurity to relative obscurity. (laughs) (laughs) This included The Brother from Another Planet, Mate One, Eight Men Out, City of Hope, Passion Fish, The Secret of Roan Inish, Lone Star, Men with Guns, and Limbo. It was a really good stretch of movies. I think the only one of those you might have seen is Passion Fish. Any memory of that? Did we watch that? I think we did at some point. Mary McConnell's in a wheelchair. Alfre Woodard is yes. the woman taking care of her. Yes. Okay. David yes. Strathairn is a Cajun fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I do remember. I don't remember if you liked it or not. I think I did. I think you did. Yeah, I think I did. I may need to dig into his his film 
career there. Yeah, it's a really good career. Um, and I think he's he hasn't made a movie since 2013. I think he's pretty much the definition of they don't make movies like that mm-hmm. anymore. I think mm-hmm. he's the exact kind of filmmaker that has been completely left behind in the current distribution models. Yeah. In a tribute to sales on American Cinematheque, the website says, Within the pantheon of American independent filmmakers, there exists nothing more singular than the cinematic diversity, texture, and brilliance of John Sayles. Less interested in constructing splashy political entertainment or casting bankable actors, Sayles steeps his stories in the realism of grassroots social interactions, nuanced perspectives, and everyday human struggle. It's a body of work more interested in the communal and communities than any living filmmaker. I think that's true. He's got a real feel and interest for how communities interact. Hmm. Matthew Thrift, writing for BFI, says sales films show a keenly understood sense of place and a focus on working people, often marginalized or oppressed, usually by the inherent violence of capitalism (laughs) across multiple strata of a given community. So that's right. That speaks to your heart. Yes, it does. His is an inescapably political cinema, but it's hard to side with those critics who describe his work as didactic. Sales films often essay deep set social injustices, but they don't presume a solution to the complex realities he presents. Only an incisively humanistic, empathetic focus on the lives of the working folk who endure them. I think he's a great filmmaker. Um, And this is my favorite of his movies. It's probably one of his best-known movies. This and Passion Fish both got him Oscar nominations for Best Screenplay. So that was probably the highest profile of his movies. Um, Roger Ebert said, John Sayles' Lone Star contains so many riches, it humbles ordinary movies. A great American movie, one of the few to seriously try to regard with open eyes the way we live now. Janet Maslin in the New York Times said, Gratifyingly complex and beautifully told, Lone Star winds up with a scope and overview rarely attempted in American films today. Every moment of the film, from the quiet foreshadowing of its first scene to a magnificently apt ending, is utterly right. And this is, it does, this does get to why I like this movie so much. I think there aren't a lot of movies that try to look at the complexity of American life and the various American subcultures in the way that this one does. We'll see if you agree when we when we get there. Okay. And this sort of gets back to how I argue that it's it's a noir. It I mean it it is. But on the surface at least it's not stylistically a noir. It's not in black and white. It doesn't take place in an urban setting. It's not you know, necessarily lit or shot like what we think of as a film noir. Mm -hmm. But I would argue that it's structured like a noir. At its heart, it's a murder mystery with a, you know, lone and lonely detective moving back and forth across various social lines and uncovering the lies and corruption at the heart of his community. And I think it's spiritually and thematically a noir. The late, great Roger Ebert again said film noir was the most American film genre because no society could have created a world so filled with doom, fate, fear, and betrayal unless it were essentially naive and optimistic. (laughs) I think that observation is spot on that, you know, noir is sort of a response or a corrective to America's illusions about itself. And I do think that's what Lone Star is about. Looking at America and specifically at the very American myth of... Texas. Mm. <laughs> Matt Zoller cites writing on RogerEber.com last year on the film's 25th anniversary called Lone Star, the most wide ranging and sophisticated drama ever set in Texas. He said it's the movie that best understands how Texans mythologize and lie about themselves and how the lying and mythologizing dovetails with deception and self-deception in the rest of the nation and the world. That's what I think this movie is about. I really like this movie. I think there's a chance you might like it. <laughs> One never knows with you, uh-huh. uh, but we're going to find out. Okay. Lone Star is currently available to rent from Amazon, Apple, Google, and a bunch of other streaming services. Nikki and I are going to go watch it now, and when we get back, we will talk about Lone Star. <laughs> Forty years ago, under Sheriff Charlie Wade, Rio County was as corrupt as they came. That's Sheriff Wade. He could get ugly. Then, Buddy Deed showed up. How about you lay that shield on this table and vanish? You're a dead man. 
They called him a legend. He was a unique individual. They called him a champion of justice. The day that man died, they broke the damn mold. His son is about to find out the truth. Follow me. I'm Sheriff Deed. Sheriff Deed is dead, honey. He's just Sheriff Junior. We found a body out by Fort McKenzie yesterday. You got any idea who might have put him there? A hell of a time to bring up old business. That badge didn't come out of a cereal box. Start digging holes in this county, no telling what will come up. You two saw it, didn't you? I'm gonna find out one way or the other. I just think people in town ought to know the full story on Buddy Deeds. That makes two of us. Castle Rock Entertainment presents the new film from acclaimed director John Sayles. Gotta be careful where you go poking. Who knows who you'll find? <laughs> Lone Star. And we're back. During the break, Nikia and I watched Lone Star. Nikia, let's get this week's mission statement out of the way first. Is this a film noir? I totally forgot that's what we were doing this week. Um, <laughs> I guess so, sure. I think it is. I think it's thematically a yeah. noir. Yeah. It's, you know, it's got the murder mystery plot. And I think, I think it's using that to examine a larger question about uncovering a crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I actually think a lot of films noir are doing that. They're actually looking at, you know, basic corruption and moral decay in America. Right. So I, I do. I do think this fits the category. What what did you make of this movie? I enjoyed it. Okay. I think it's one of those, it is very, um, I don't even know what to call it. It's measured. Like, the, it is not a loud no. or ostentatious movie in the way that a lot of films that do this, like, interconnected story thing. But that's what I like about it. No, I'm not saying it. I wasn't uh, mentioning it as a negative. And, in fact, at the end, as I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, it's like the anti-crash. Yes, basically. exactly. But something that that is that sort of, you have to sort of sit with it and let it simmer a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I did enjoy it. I will say it's it's a movie I've seen several times and I think it gets better every time I watch it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's more going on. In it. And it's funny because it is obviously there's a didactic yes. point to it. There's some a lot of stuff that is very clearly meant to be allegorical, metaphorical. Uh, but it's it's actually subtle despite or not subtle is not the right word. It's just not. It's not obnoxious in the way right. it does that. It's, right. it's very organic. It doesn't feel preachy. Right. Right. But yeah, I do think it's more complex than it appears. Mm-hmm. I think everything that's happening in it is more complex than it appears. And that it, that is what I like about it. And the other thing I like about it, I was thinking about it watching it this time, is I react to this movie feeling like, why aren't there more movies like this? Mm. Almost anywhere you want to set a movie in America... This level of complexity about the various cultures that are there sure, are present. should be there, yeah. right? You could, I mean, they tell a story and it's a throwaway piece, but it's they talk about the village that was destroyed to make room for the lake for and all the white mm-hmm. people ended up with lakefront property, right? Mm-hmm. New York City, that's the story of Central Park. Mm-hmm. The exact same story happened in Central Park, right? We don't hear those stories. Right. Like, that's not... Woody Allen making movies about New York. We don't get those stories, right? But we could. Sure. And it's very rare, actually, this level of interest in all of those communities and the history and the complicated history that's behind them is way rarer than it should be Mm -hmm. in American filmmaking. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will make a bold statement, especially to you. All right. And I'm not even sure what you would call this film festival, but I could imagine programming a film festival, this would be on the bill, do the right thing would be on the bill. Mm, sure. Right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Um, and I mean, it's interesting to sort of juxtapose those two because do the right thing is so loud and overt. It is. And, and stylized. And, stylized. and mm-hmm. What they both do really well is... This sort of nuanced take on, like, morality and who's right and who's wrong. Yes. Which I think is interesting in these types of movies. Because it's easy to just say... The oppressed people are always right. And it's like, well, how are we all sort of complicit in what's happening right now? For various reasons. That is, I think, where the characters in this Mm -hmm. movie become fascinating. Mm -hmm. 
All right, so how do you how do you want to approach this? There's, there's too many things going <laughs> on so in this movie to, to talk about it in any kind of linear way. Right. I think we can talk about there's three sort of well, there's three communities. Sure. Right? There's the white community, there's the Hispanic community, and then the smallest community in town is the black community, which is mostly attached to the military base mm-hmm. that's in the process of being closed. Mm-hmm. So can we, we maybe start by approaching those spheres, or yeah. we can talk story, we can talk, there's the murder mystery that is sort of the spine sure. of this movie. I don't know. How do you want to approach? I have no idea. Um, I guess let's start with the spine. Okay. And then... <laughs> Um, so, I mean, the, the big murder mystery is that a skeleton is discovered out on sort of this deserted shooting range. There's a Masonic ring and a very old sheriff's badge buried with the skeleton. Come to find out it is the remains of Charlie Wade. Charlie Wade, played in flashbacks by Chris Christopherson at his most odious. Very scary. Um... (laughs) Who was the former sheriff of Frontera. Right, in the 50s. In the 50s, who sort of led with an iron fist uh, and basically shook down the black community and the Mexican community um, to enrich his own pockets and was abusive and killed corrupt. Killed so many people. Killed so There's many people. There's a scene where Chris Cooper's, the current sheriff, Sam, is just going through old files mm-hmm. and it's just like... Death certificate after death, death certificate, certificate. Killed by Charlie Wade, killed by Charlie Wade, resisting arrest, resisting arrest, resisting arrest. So, terrible human being. Yes. Buddy Deeds, <laughs> who is then his, like, He was then his deputy, deputy, right. Sort of challenges him and just, like, I'm not going to engage this is, in this. This like, is Matthew McConaughey in one of his first roles. Yeah, so he's basically like, I'm not going to participate in this shakedown bullshit with you. Yeah. Your days are numbered. He says this publicly, publicly. Everyone sort of hears him. It turns out, it turns up Charlie Wade then dies like the next day. Well, or dis- that disappears, night. disappears the next day, right? Yes. Nobody, supposedly he stole money and ran right. off. Right. Nobody knows what happens. Yeah. So, Buddy's son, Sam, um, basically assumes that he, he's the current sheriff yes. and he, when they find the body, everyone pretty much knows right away it's Charlie. that's Charlie Wade. Right. And so Sam basically decides that Buddy must have killed Charlie, both because everyone was aware of the threat and how he felt about Charlie, but also because Sam does not have necessarily the best of (laughs) feelings about his now deceased father. Yeah. That's a great performance by Chris Cooper. It is. It is. It's very quiet and... He spends most of the movie receiving information. He doesn't. Mm-hmm. He's not actually talking a whole lot. No, and he's actually not very proactive. He's no. just right. And it's a little bit of yes, trying to solve this mystery, but also this challenging of the mythology mm-hmm. that has grown around his father. Because his father is a hero to everybody. He was great to the black people. He was great to the Mexicans. He was great to the whites. And it's all a yeah. whole thing. They broke the mold. When right. that man died, there'll never be another one. People say, basically to his face. Right. Like, he's the, he's the new sheriff. Yeah. And they're saying... The you, only reason you, you have this job is because you have the same last name as your dad. Right. Basically. You will never be right. the man that your dad was. Right. And obviously, Sam, as many sons do, had a different relationship to his father that is more complicated than that. And so that sort of the foundation of that murder mystery then provides us access and insight into how those sort of various communities relate to each other, how Mm -hmm. they don't relate to each other, the conflicts even within those communities and sort of asking the question of like what do communities like this run on yes they run on mythology they run on quote-unquote law and order they run on these sorts of relationships and negotiations that require sort of constant navigation across borders both real and imaginary Mm -hmm. and it is it's complicated because it's this movie does work on strictly a character level and Mm -hmm. strictly a personal level Mm mm-hmm Right? Because then it's the story of, there's the murder mystery, but the emotional basis of that is Sam wanting to figure out who his father really was. Right. And in a way, wanting his father to be guilty. Yeah. That he's, you know, he, because he's tired of hearing what a great guy Buddy Deeds was. So Mm -hmm. he would love to prove that Buddy Deeds was a murderer. But then, like you said, that 
that storyline is used to then bring us into all of these different worlds and how they interconnect. And it's also, this is where the, the sort of symbolic level comes in. I mean, it is about the myth of America, right? I mean, Buddy Deeds, at one point there's a dedication, mm-hmm. of, they're dedicating the courthouse to Buddy Deeds and the mayor gives a speech and he says, he talks about how the governor once said, you know, if you want to see what a Texan should be, go down to Frontera and look at Sheriff Buddy Deeds. Mm-hmm. Like he's the perfect Western American cowboy. He's the symbol of everything great about Texas, about America, all of that. And so the movie is like, yeah, let's unpack that right. and look at what the real story is there. Yeah. Try to get at the truth behind the legend. And Buddy was a different kind of sheriff than Charlie Wade was. Sure. Which is why everyone loves him. But not all good. No. (laughs) (laughs) And this this is as I think, again, just as good a statement about like whiteness in this country Mm -hmm. as I've seen in any movie, because Mm -hmm. it's like, no, he's not the gonna shoot you in the face kind of sheriff that we see in so many movies that that's like movies are very comfortable with that cartoonish level Mm -hmm. of racism Mm -hmm. right and that cartoonish level of corruption that charlie wade represented but and sam keeps pushing that point everyone talks about how great buddy was and sam says well you know did did you have a deal with buddy like you had with charlie wade right and the business owners say well no he didn't extort money from us but when election time came around as long as we We supported the right people right rounded up the votes for him Mm -hmm. it supported right all of that so it's like the more the less direct corruption and the more political sophisticated corruption right but it's still corruption well there's that great scene between sam and a bartender a white bartender oh the the white bartender yes yes (laughs) And so Sam's sort of in a bar just having a beer and... This is the basically the one white bar this in This is town. the white bar. And the right. guy says, he's like, this This is the last... The last sort of stand. The, the last, Alamo, the al- This is the Alamo, right? My one white yes. bar where white people can come. So the bartender says, you joke about it, Sam, but we are in a state of crisis. The lines of demarcation are getting yep. fuzzy. To run a successful civilization, you have got to have your lines of demarcation between right and wrong, between this and and that. Your daddy understood that. Yeah. He was a, what do you call it? A referee for this damn menudo we got down here. He understood how most folks don't want their salt and sugar in the same jar. So this idea of like, Charlie Wade was, if we're going to use contemporary examples, Charlie Wade was a Trump. Mm -hmm. And Buddy seemed more like a Pence. (laughs) <laughs> sure like it was I'll a, accept that. a finer instrument it was a much more civilized instrument where it's just like i'm just keeping law and order we have to have these lines of demarcation in order for this community to work yeah. otherwise everything's going to go to hell and so this idea that the right thing was not necessarily equal representation from those communities it was not necessarily interracial dating mm-hmm Right. There's an interracial couple right. in that bar, and the bartender says, your daddy would have gone over there right. and given the right them a little thing warning. was order. Yeah. Um, and how that order was defined was coming down from a white sheriff who had very specific ideas of like what order looked like in a community yeah. like Frontera. But it is, it's this comparison thing where Otis, who owns the black bar mm-hmm. in town, Sam, again, is asking him those questions about like, what was your deal with Buddy? You know, what did what did you have to do to keep Buddy happy? Mm-hmm. And Otis says, he says, what I remember is that no prisoner ever died in your father's care mm-hmm. and that nobody would ever hesitate to go to your father for help. Beyond that, I don't have anything don't to care. say. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's like that's the basic level of he's better than Charlie Wade. Right. He's, you know. Right. Instead of actually what that position should be mm-hmm. and what you know mm-hmm. all right what do we we gotta we, talk some plot here how do you want to how do you there's so much shit in this movie there's a lot of shit in this movie okay uh, let's 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 go around some characters here just okay. to get everybody on the t- on the board so sam who has only recently come back to town to be the sheriff mm-hmm. uh when he was in high school had a relationship with pilar mm-hmm. played by elizabeth pina um so they sort of rekindle their acquaintance mm-hmm. over the course of this movie. 
Uh, Pilar has a mother, Mercedes, who owns a restaurant and is on the city council. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else we got? Well, you mentioned Otis. Otis. Otis's estranged son, Delmore, uh, played by Joe Morton, is the new commander of the military base. That is soon to close. That is soon to close, and Delmore is not happy to be back in this town. Uh Delmore has a son, teenage son, Chet. The mayor of the town is Hollis. He was both Charlie Wade's and Buddy Deed's deputies. Mm Mm-hmm. So he's the connection to that history. So there's all these people. Everybody knows a lot of history, and they all share a lot of history. Did I forget anybody? Uh, I, think those are I mean, there's there's more yeah, other minor characters, those are the but main folks, I think. So there's in each one of these stories, there's a lot of generational stuff going on yes. too, and how things are different for the children than they were for the parents. How the parents, their attitudes are. This is where. Like we were talking about how who's good and who's bad, and you know it's it's not as clear cut. Mm-hmm. Like Mercedes is a piece of work. I mean, but Mercedes is a, a woman of her time. Yes, she is someone who did cross the river. Yeah, to get which we don't learn until late. Very in the movie. late in the movie, because earlier in the movie, what we see is her saying, "I don't employ right. illegals." Yes, in my kitchen. Yes. She's telling everybody, speak English, you got to work hard. You know, she's basically chastising the Mexican people who work for her. Right. And she's, she has a house on the river and she calls border patrol Patrol whenever she sees people running across her backyard. So this is someone who has come over and sort of fully assimilated and is a business leader and a political um, player in the community and is trying very hard to sort of hold on to that status and yeah. that leverage um, and wants to sort of distance herself from what she sees to be. There's another, and again, this is just a throwaway line that I don't think I even noticed on previous viewings. Mm-hmm. Um, Pilar is talking to one of her friends about her mother and how her mother says she's Spanish, right. not Mexican. Right. Right. And in, in other words, she's white. Right. She, she identifies as white. Mm-hmm. And her friend says something about your mother works all the time. And Pilar says, yeah, that's how you get to be Spanish. Right. Right. That's how you get to be. You can work your way to being white in this community. Yeah. And I think we see that same sort of, there's a real like bootstrap Mm. mentality going on with a lot of the, the generational stuff here of like, okay, we got ours. But yeah, like we find out late in the movie that Mercedes came over illegally herself she Mm -hmm. crossed the river herself Mm -hmm. but now she has no sympathy for the people who have to do that right and she is also very much against pilar having and reigniting the relationship with sam because she doesn't approve what we think she doesn't approve because pilar is mexican and sam is white right we come to find out later we we get we get new information about that later that mercedes actually had an affair (laughs) with spoiler alert uh, with sam's father (laughs) buddy and pilar is their daughter now you're jumping right to the last scene of the movie so just put that there for a second yes so Sam and Pilar, who have rekindled this romance, are half siblings. Are half siblings? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert: They decide that doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> Which is another one of those things that it's just a great plot point, but it's it's also symbolic. Everybody in this community shares the same history. They all inherited the same mm-hmm. history. So yeah, they are. Half, How much does this half matter? brother and sister? Yes. And what does that mean? That yes. they came from the same the same story produced them both, mm-hmm. literally. Mm-hmm. I mean, beyond Pilar and Mercedes, the rest of the film really is this exploration of the sort of father son dynamic. So you have Sam's sort of interrogation of Buddy's reputation and almost like rejection of everything that his father stood for, mm-hmm. even as he sits in the same seat that his father once sat in. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Otis and Delmar. So Otis as the owner of a bar that creates space for illegal activities, numbers running, blah, 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 blah. And was a sort of non-factor in his son Delmar's life. He basically left him, Delmar, and his mother when Delmar was very young. And so Delmar has a lot of animosity towards his dad around that and seemingly went in exactly the opposite direction by becoming a colonel in the army and is very straight laced very straight very, yeah. very law and order and very particular and then there is Delmar and his son Chet who we see that sort of generational pattern yeah. 
playing out again where Chet's like, I want to be, what does he want to be? Can't remember. It wasn't. I, I don't know if he says, but he likes to draw. He likes he's to draw. An he wants to he's, run, tra- like do these right. other things. Like he's and not interested to to in, going into the, in going into the military. And so again, this like rejection of the father and wanting to get out from under the shadow and the myth of a father, um, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And in all of these stories, you can go back further still too, mm-hmm. because we get in flashback. And let, let me pause for a second. The flashbacks in this movie really are well fantastic. They're really well done. They're all done, almost all done in camera. Mm-hmm. So we just pan across the bar and suddenly we're in the past. Right. That kind of thing. And again, just that it's it's a nice stylistic trick, but it's also got thematic resonance to it. It's like all the history is still present here. Yes. But anyway. So we, we see a flashback, for example, of Otis when he was... Mm-hmm. A teenager and Roderick, who owned the bar, Roderick and his wife were not literally his parents, but again, that's still it's mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the previous generation that was trying to teach him how to act, and he was rebelling against that then. Right, and you can sort of see Charlie Wade, Buddy Deeds, and Sam as again three generations of sheriff. Right, it's mm-hmm. all right. You want to talk about that school board meeting? Sure. Um, so Pilar is a teacher mm-hmm. and we spend some time with her at a school board meeting where, uh, members of the school board, white, Mexican, I don't even know if there's any, if there were any black people in the room for that, discussing how she was approaching teaching the Battle of the Alamo. She, uh, she nowadays we would say she was teaching... Accurate history. Um, Yes, but the white people would say she was doing critical race theory. Yes, that she was doing critical race theory. But she sort of dared to question this idea of, like, who won and who didn't. And and and, what were the motives? What were the motives? And um, so, again, it is this idea of who gets to what is the history that defines community? Who wrote that history? Mm -hmm. And then what happens when you start to sort of untangle and unravel that? And what's the sort of fallout? Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was really interesting. And this is a town, they make it clear, this is a town where the white people are the minority. Yes. yes. But they're like, we won, you lost. We get the bragging rights. We get the bragging the... rights. We get to tell the story the way yes. we want it told. Yes. And, you know, Pilar is like, I'm just trying to teach some of the complexity mm-hmm. of our situation here. Mm-hmm. And the white woman says... Well, if you're talking about like food and music, food, yes. I have no problem with that. <laughs> but actually winning. <laughs> but if you're talking about who it. did what to who, that's a different it's not story. Gonna work. It's not going to work. <laughs> I, I thought that scene was very accurate. It was really well done. It was really well done. So while I was watching this, it brought to mind this book that I had read a couple years ago. It's called Borderlands, La Frontera, The New Mestiza by Gloria Anzandulla. It's really, really good. That's the name of the town. Yes, and I highly recommend it. But it's sort of this this exploration of what does it mean to be an identity sort of defined by a border mm, and like the mm-hmm. sort of the injury that is done as someone who has to cross a border that was sort of placed upon them. And it's it's I I highly recommend it. Um but there are a few passages in the in the book that I thought were sort of brought to mind when I was thinking about this movie. So she writes, Borders are set up to define the places that are safe and unsafe, to distinguish us from them. A border is a dividing line, a narrow strip along a steep edge. A borderland is a vague and undetermined place created by the emotional residue of an unnatural boundary. It is in a constant state of transition. The prohibited and forbidden are its inhabitants. The squin-eyed, the perverse, the queer, the troublesome, the mongrel, the mulatto, the half-breed, the half-dead. In short, those who cross over, pass over, or grow through the confines of the quote-unquote normal. Gringos in the U.S. Southwest consider the inhabitants of the borderlands transgressors, aliens, whether they possess documents or not, whether they're Chicanos, Indians, or Blacks. Do not enter. Trespassers will be raped, maimed, strangled, gassed, shot. The only legitimate inhabitants are those in power, the whites and those who align themselves with whites. And so that mm. was something that was sort of sitting with me the entire mm-hmm. time that I was watching this this film, of this idea of how identity gets defined in these sort of troubled spaces, right? Troubled by war, troubled by constant negotiation of boundaries, troubled by 
evolving definitions of like whiteness and who gets to be white and Mm -hmm. so we come back to sort of mercedes sort of navigation of her own identity of like i'm not mexican i'm spanish and and sort of why did she feel she needed to do that and then what does she lose by making that allegiance Mm -hmm. and has she even sort of sort of think through that yeah Um, at one point pilar asked her if she wants to go visit mexico and she has no interest absolutely not absolutely not well in relation to that i think that the scene where sam goes to mexico Mm -hmm. is interesting and the conversation he has with chucho with Chucho, the a witness there, mm-hmm. um, a guy who actually witnessed the murder of Pilar's father, official <laughs> father, <Right>. quotes <laughs> on paper, father. Yeah, there's this great scene where he takes a bottle of like a glass bottle of Coke and just sort of draws a line in the sand, like literally draws a line yeah. in the sand between himself and Sam. And he says, step across this line. You're not the sheriff of nothing anymore. It's a miracle, he says. Right. Just some Tejano with a lot of questions I don't have to answer. A bird flying south, you think he sees this line? Rattlesnake, javelina, whatever you got. You think halfway across that line they start thinking different? Why should a man? And so this whole idea, again, of like, the shit is imaginary. Yeah. And so the, the power of someone like a white sheriff is dependent upon people's acceptance of that border mm-hmm. and the acceptance of the authority that being able to name that border brings. And the acceptance of, which I think this movie is very interested in, the stories that justify that, right? Yes. I mean, that's, remember the Alamo. Yep. That's the whole thing of the Alamo, yep. is that that was the, the last stand. And, you know, the truth of that story <laughs> And again, we get this information in just a scene where Pilar is teaching in school. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's it's not shoved down our throats, but the information is there mm-hmm. if we're listening about how, yeah, the Texas Republic was part of Mexico until Mexico outlawed slavery. And then they said, nope, we're going to go to the U.S. Right. And they were in the U.S. about 10 years. And then they said, oh, you're outlawing slavery? Fuck you, we're joining the Confederacy. Right. That's the story of the Alamo. That's what that was all about. It wasn't about anything heroic or anything noble, but that's the sort of stories that are necessary for us to justify that border and to justify all of the things that are done to enforce it. Which also brings to mind the conversation. Another great scene that I loved was the conversation between Delmar and one of his privates. Yes. Um, So at Otis's bar one night... Two gentlemen, one of whom at least is um, a black soldier from the unit that Delmar oversees and a, a black woman from the same unit. Yeah, Private Johnson. Private Johnson. There's some altercation. It seems like there's some sort of love triangle going on. It ends up being that the second black guy shoots the black male military officer. Mm-hmm. So there's obviously an investigation of like what the hell happened. This brings Delmar and his dad Otis again back into a place of conflict because it happened on sort of Otis's. It happened in the bar and right. The bar. But then Delmar has this really interesting exchange with the female private sort of asking her sort of what the hell happened. So they've instituted this policy after that incident of they're going to drug test all the privates. Mm-hmm. And so her drug test comes back positive. So yeah. there seems to be some insinuation that she was not living the greatest life before she joined the military. She was involved with drugs and it sounds like not running with the, the great the greatest of crowds. Yeah. They, there's a comment earlier that she pulled herself out of a very rough right. neighborhood. Right. And so he's talking to her as they're sort of thinking through, you know, what, if anything, would be her punishment. And he asks her, you know, why she wants to sort of stay in the service. So Private Johnson, who happens to be played by Chandra Wilson, and it's a really beautiful scene. And like all the scenes, it's like small and it's saying something big, but it doesn't it doesn't feel like, oh, my God, this is a big speech moment. Yeah. Um, But he's basically asking her, you know. Why do you want to be in the army? Why do you want to be in the army? And she says this thing and sort of going back to this idea of like the stories that we tell ourselves, not only about land and who won, but also like, why do we fight for those things? And he's all honor and serving serving your country. And she's like, it's their country. Yeah. And this is one of the best deals that they offer. Yeah. And so this idea that like for a lot of folks, particularly black and brown folks, the engagement in the military may not be about. It's not about loving your country necessarily. It's like this is the opportunity that is offered to me. Yeah. 
because I came from a certain neighborhood with certain, like, these were the options. And she has this wonderful moment where she's also, like, really honest about the fact, like, outside of this is just chaos. Yes. And you can see this, like, fear of, like, if I'm not here. Yeah. I'm, you know, something's going to happen to me because it's just, it's too crazy out there and I can't, I can't manage yeah. it. That all seems to land with him. It does. And she says, you know, he asks her, okay, why do you think they let us yes. in on this deal? And she says, well, because they have people to fight. You have Arabs. She calls them yellow people, whatever, you know, might as well use us. Yeah. So they're using us to it. So we get in on the deal, quote unquote, and they get what is essentially sort of human ammunition and people that are willing to sort of sign up for what is a myth when we're thinking about um, sort of how we build stories and, and um, heroes in our mind. So I thought that that was a really interesting moment in the, and another moment in this film of challenging, like, that's not why I'm here. I'm yeah. here because this was my option. And it's all for him, too. It's all, I think he changes after that mm -hmm. scene. Mm -hmm. And it's after that scene that he tells his son he doesn't need to go in the army. Right. Um, and he loosens up a little bit towards his dad. Mm -hmm. I think it's almost like he hadn't really questioned why he was, hadn't questioned the, the story he had told himself about right. why he was in the army. Yeah. And maybe his story was more like hers than he was willing to admit. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good scene. There's so much stuff in this movie that just seems like it's throwaway and that it isn't. Right, yeah. Like, I think the first couple of times I watched it, I didn't think about um, Otis in the back of his bar has this little museum he's put up to... Black Indians. Black Indians, Black Seminoles. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I thought through why that's there. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that really is... The, the story of the Black Seminoles, which, again, he tells. We get that information. It's just like, but it comes very organically, is like America in small. Mm -hmm. It's like runaway slaves go and join Native Americans. Then they go fight the white people in Florida. Then they go join up with the Mexicans. Then they come back and they work for the army, right? It's like this little microcosm of all of these things that are going on in this story and in the larger mm -hmm. American story mm -hmm. encapsulated in this one really interesting bit of history. Yeah. All right. This is a really hard movie to talk about in any kind of organized way. <laughs> but so let's just, you know, screw it and just jump around here. Is there any, what else do you want to talk about? I guess we can talk about, you know, we don't resolve the mystery here. The mystery actually doesn't end up meaning no. very much. No. It, it really is just an excuse to move back and forth between all these different communities. But we, we eventually get the story of what actually happened. Mm -hmm. It wasn't Buddy no. that killed Charlie Wade. It was Hollis. his deputy Hollis, who's mm -hmm. now the mayor, because Charlie Wade was going to shoot Otis. Yeah. When Otis was a young kid who was running a craps game in the back of the bar, and Charlie Wade wasn't getting his piece of it. Mm -hmm. So he was going to straight up murder him, just like he straight up murdered Eladio Cruz, mm -hmm. Pilar's father. For the same reason. None of it had anything to do with justice. It was all about no. Charlie wasn't getting, he wasn't his, getting what he was owed. His piece. Thought, yes. His piece of it. Yes. So, yeah. So... So it turns out Buddy didn't kill him. Mm -hmm. Hollis killed him. Otis and Hollis and Buddy buried the body. It was, there. there's nobody needs to, there's no justice to be served here. No. Justice was served. No. But there's a nice moment, you know, Sam is like, okay, well, I guess officially this mystery will never be solved. We'll just let it go. But then I think it's Hollis who says, you know, people are going to assume mm -hmm. your dad did this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Sam is like, well... I think he's a legend can take it. Yeah, but he's a legend. Mm -hmm. I think he can handle this one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he does get his little bit of revenge there where it's like, okay, it, it seems fair that, that people think that about Buddy. We can live with that. Well, I, and I think it's also a question of like, would they? This idea of would they let go? Would they even be willing to let go of their idealized version of Buddy to accept that he may have murdered someone and it's very well possible that they wouldn't. Like right. that the the story and the myth means too much. Yeah. Well this is I think this movie is, you know, the very last scene of this movie takes place at the drive in and the drive in is closed down. And I think that's actually symbolic because I think so much of this stuff about the legend of the West and everything, it came through the movies, right? I mean, that's John Wayne and the Alamo. Like, all of that came through the movies. That's how we formed these legends to a large extent. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the movies that I think informs this movie is uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which you haven't seen. Maybe we'll watch that one of these days. 
But that's a movie where somebody has built a legend around the fact that they supposedly killed this terrible guy named Liberty Valance and turns out didn't really happen. Mm. But he he gets elected to the Senate based on that legend and all of this stuff. Hmm. But there's a line in that movie where somebody says, this is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Mm. So it doesn't matter what the truth is. The legend is far more useful. Mm-hmm. Um, for all of these reasons that we've been talking about. Yeah. So, yeah, you're probably right. I mean, nobody was going to, they weren't going to tear down the plaque to no. Buddy. That was that no. was too important. Any other favorite scenes or bits you want to talk about? There, there's so much in this movie. I, I hope people, have, if they haven't seen it, I hope they go watch it. Um, I, don't, I think I called out my, my favorites. I don't know that there's, I think Francis. Oh, my God. We didn't talk about Francis McDormand. We didn't talk about Francis McDormand. And I said when we were every time I watch this movie, I forget she's coming because it's such a weird. Little it's a scene. weird little moment. Um, so he, Francis McDormand plays uh, Sam's ex-wife Bunny. Bunny, <laughs> which is interesting that his dad's name was Buddy, and then he married a woman named Bunny. Yeah. And we meet her, and there's no we have no background on her whatsoever, and she's we just experience her, and it's just like what the <laughs> fuck is happening? But this is a woman who is. So keyed up, you're like, is she on coke? She's, what is she? Is tightly wound? Tightly is that how she wound, describes? It? Yeah, but like is an has an encyclopedic knowledge of like football. <laughs> she's stats. obsessed with just, football. Like, spewing, That's all. Her like, whole life is football. Just wearing a, a football hat, like a football team hat, and like a jersey, and like her house is full of memorabilia. Full of yeah. shit, and she's just spouting at him all these stats from she, football. She has some sort of there's mental issue there's going something, on. It, there's a reference to her being on medication. Yes, and so. Part of us is the part of our trying to figure out is like how much of this is like because she like did the divorce like fuck her up <laughs> no. or was this who he married and that's sort of what led to the divorce. She she says she has a little self awareness. Mm-hmm. She says something about like you bought yourself a pig in a poke, yeah. didn't you, Sam? You yeah. didn't you didn't know I was tightly wound when you married me. <laughs> and but we just like there's we're just sort of thrown into it. But she's hyper she's and she's so just hyper. so intense. But it's. <laughs> It's a fun. It's like five minutes, maybe, of a and but she's she's you cannot take your eyes off of her. Like you're just watching this thing happen. It's yeah. like a force. Um, and he is perfectly is the same sort of perfectly calm and quiet the entire time. Yeah, trying just, to be nice. Trying to be just like Bunny, you look good. Yeah, it's good to see you, like, Bunny. Good to see you. And then it's just like, <laughs> what the fuck happened in this minute? Like, how did y'all get married? And what? But but it was just such a like you could have. She wasn't needed. No. And yet, I'm so glad that she's there. And I feel like there were a lot of characters like that that were just like, they weren't needed. All of the kids. This is what I think is remarkable about John Sayles' work. Because like I said, it is symbolic. Mm -hmm. You know, it is characters are there for a reason and Mm -hmm. they represent something. Mm -hmm. And I even think she does. I mean, I think, you know, we watch Friday Night Lights. Like the whole football in Texas, Mm -hmm. like white people in football in Texas. Like she is that condensed into this, you know black hole of craziness mm-hmm. um but the characters are just so well drawn they all register as just real people right and there could be entire movies yeah like you mentioned roderick the previous owner of the bar and his wife so sam goes to talk to <laughs> yes. his wife sam goes and to see his widow sitting on the porch playing a game boy and it's like i could just hang out with her I'm like what <laughs> yeah, is she, she doing awesome <laughs> like there could be entire movies about this this woman just sitting on the porch playing a game boy like fully retired and not giving a shit about anybody he's like okay what was he say. walks up he says i'm sheriff deeds and she says <laughs> Sheriff, Deeds, Sheriff is Deeds is dead, honey. You Sheriff Junior. <laughs> so it's like characters like that where it's like they're not, they're both necessary and totally unnecessary. Yeah. Um, and they add to the overall just feeling of like these are real lived in characters that yeah. could, that are, that warrant their own stories, quite frankly. So what do you think, what do you think uh, the end of the movie, you know, where, where do we leave Sam and Pilar? I mean, you know, if you want to fuck your sister, that's fine. <laughs> um... <laughs> I like how they added that point about like her. Uh, she can't have children anymore, so yeah, <laughs> if you don't have to worry about that. If that's the concern. If that's what the holdup is. Um, but I do. I think your point about like this is a community full of people who are much more connected than they even realize, and so yeah, I mean, it's nice for them. They are clearly very much in love, and it it also ties back. There's also this theme I think that runs throughout about like when do you decide to just say fuck the past, mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. forget it. Mm-hmm. It's it's something that Delmar's kid, Chet, says. He says, my dad always says, the moment you're born, you have a clean slate. Mm-hmm. You know, no excuses, no blame. You make your own life. It's that bootstrap mentality I was talking about earlier. 
Yeah. And that's what Pilar says at the very last scene of the movie. She's like, okay, blank slate. Right. Like, we're, we're just Starting gonna f- fresh. Yep, starting fresh. And the very last line of the movie, Sam says, forget the Alamo. Yeah. Like, we're just going <laughs> to take it from this point and go forward. I, lo- I love this movie. And it did make me, I was like, I need to go back and rewatch. I've seen, I've seen about half of John Sayles' movies. There's probably half of them I haven't seen. I think I need to go back and spend some time with his oeuvre because he's very, very good. And I really wish somebody would give him money to make movies Do like more. this yeah. nowadays. That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of The Unenthusiastic Critic. Nikia, next week sees the theatrical release of Green Onion, the sequel to Ryan Johnson's 2019 hit murder mystery, Knives Out. And just from watching the trailer for that movie, I guarantee you, I haven't asked Ryan this, but I guarantee you, that a major influence on it is a film that we were supposed to do a year ago. We announced we were watching it, and then we went on unscheduled hiatus. Mm-hmm. Um, that is Herbert Ross's The Last of Sheila from 1973. I love that movie to death. I still really want to watch it with you. So I thought maybe this was a good excuse for us to go ahead and finally do that movie. Okay. Now here, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. This is the part you're going to have a problem with. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original Knives Out, coincidentally, was inspired, at least in part, by another one of my all-time favorite movies in a very similar vibe, which also happens to be celebrating its 50th anniversary the first week in December. Uh, so really, I don't see that we have any option but to do a murder mystery double feature. So so we're also going to be watching Joseph Bankowitz's Sleuth from 1972. I don't do double bills. <laughs> You love you love double features. I We've had some very successful no. double features. No, it's too much movie. <laughs> too much movie. We got two weeks. We're gonna do two movies. You're just gonna do it in one episode. Right. This is a great. This is a good double bill. I love both these movies. Honestly, we can you know probably just end the podcast happy after this episode. I'll be fine with that. Okay. <laughs> we won't, but we could. <laughs> The Last of Sheila is available to rent from Apple, Amazon, Google Play, and several other streaming services. Sleuth, on the other hand, for annoying legal reasons we'll discuss next week, is legally available exactly nowhere to watch. That's really the only reason we haven't already done that movie. But there is currently a very nice copy someone has uploaded to YouTube, probably illegally. But it's, I looked, it's been there nine months. I have no reason to think they're going to take it down in the next couple of weeks. So if you haven't seen that, go watch it. And for the love of God, do not watch the 2007 remake with Jude Law. Just don't. Trust me on this one. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you can download earlier episodes, leave us a comment, or make a donation to support the show. I also want to take this opportunity to strongly encourage people to go to the website and sign up for our email list to be notified when we drop new episodes. With Twitter currently on its deathbed, we do not know that. Email is going to be the best way to stay abreast of new articles and episodes. Don't worry, I don't send you any other crap. I'm not that organized. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. 